Welcome to Buy the Bywater, a podcast on the Megaphonic Network. I'm Ned Raggett. I'm Oriana Schwint. I'm Jared Pekachek. And we're here to talk about all things J.R.R. Tolkien. His work, his inspirations and impact, creative interpretations in other media, languages, lore, ripoffs, parodies, anything we think is interesting. Thanks for joining us. Hello and welcome to the 48th episode of By the Bywater. It is great to be back with you all. Oh, we've got a lot to talk about. Oh, do we ever. However, we're just going to so take the time first to celebrate the fact that uh, Oriana decided to uh, take that uh, husband of hers and go celebrate their delayed honeymoon over in Europe. And we're not envious at all. He lied. No. <laughs> so. It was actually. So we, we went to the Netherlands and, and Scotland. And oddly, it was like the most beautiful weather in, in Scotland. It was sunny. It was really sunny and beautiful. It was cold, um, but just real, saw some really cool trees. It was great. <laughs> All right. No, well, that sounds like a good way to do things. Meantime, you know, just nothing but rain and gloom. and do- Well, not, nothing so bad quite here in San Francisco, <laughs> not compared to other parts of the state. I will say this much. And I had my birthday the other day. Hooray for me. So, Yay! you know, as far as I'm concerned, rah, so 52 years. How did that happen? Anyway, so life, <laughs> life goes on. So, but um, anyway, there is, as we said, quite a bit to talk about. And there oh, won't so even much. be some news even right until the very end of the episode. But we'll get to that. However, we've got some major news uh, that uh, Jared here has much to talk about, but other things too. So please, at this point, do take it away. So there's a few things to address. <laughs> Quite a few. Starting off with something that's absolutely great. After a four-month strike, the HarperCollins Union successfully gained a new contract, which was overwhelmingly ratified by its members. That was absolutely, yeah, absolutely a heck of a hard thing to do, especially over the holiday season. So big shout out to them, and we hope things continue to improve for the best on that front. This also means that the general boycott on calling attention to newly released work by the company, which the union had asked for, is now ended. So at some point here, we will indeed look further into the new, or at least newish, Tolkien book, The Fall of Numenor. Mm. Meantime, to our extreme collective surprise, <laughs> uh, this one's a fun one. Um, the Lord of the Rings musical, which we discussed as much as we could back in episode 16, is being revived for the first time since the Western production closed in 2008, with its original producer, Kevin Wallace, again backing it. This time around, it's being done as a smaller scale, like an immersive production at a noted English regional theater, the Watermill Theater in Newbury, Berkshire, which will include staging for the opening and closing Shire sequences in its garden. The audience seating itself is only 200 people, as opposed to almost 2,000 for its original West End production, so we're assuming no overly complicated stage setups for actors to break their legs on. (laughs) 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 Don't want to get that immersive. Um, At least, you know, so we hope. If anything, since the original's run in Toronto and the West End as a mega musical production happened before the full explosion of social media, we may get some sense of what the actual book of the musical, however revised, is like this time. Tickets for shows between July and October this year go on sale later this month. Link in the show notes if you happen to find yourself in England. Um, but yeah. no question. Yeah, I'm not going to... Uh, <laughs> I'm going to fly to England just for that and I'll report back. Um, but the, you know, the big news of the last few weeks has been on February 
3rd, Warner Bros. Discovery CEO David Zaslav announced new studio heads Mike DeLuca and Pam Abdi had arranged a deal with Embracer, the Swedish firm which secured the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings licensing rights held for almost half a century by the Salzance-founded Middle-earth Enterprises last year. While exact plans aren't known, the upshot is that more movies are coming down the pike, on top of the long-in-the-works war of the Rohirrim anime due for release by Warner Bros. next year. It's important to remember that, like the just-discussed musical, this is not an arrangement with the Tolkien estate, who maintain the overall rights to all the books directly. Again, these particular licensing rights were sold by Tolkien himself when The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings were the only published Middle-earth works, and Christopher Tolkien never authorized any further rights sale. The estate, so far, has continued that stance, and its own arrangement with Amazon for The Rings of Power was due to a TV carve-out in that original rights sale, totally separate from this new Warner Brothers Embracer deal. On balance, this is essentially returning to a status quo, a continuing extension of the Middle-earth Enterprises' new line partnership started in 97 by their respective corporate heirs. But given everything in terms of what exactly they're going to be trying to do without access to anything else in the published legendarium and how cinematic universes that aren't Marvel have been turning out in general, (laughs) get ready for weirdness. (laughs) (laughs) Weirdness. So look, look, I am not... I am entirely opposed to all of this, unless, Absolutely. unless, <laughs> with one huge caveat, if they will give me a movie to write, <laughs> I am all for this, okay? Let me be perfectly clear. The Groundswell campaign starts here, and we, we ask you to all join in. It really needs to be done, so... Of it's going to be like seven movies of like muddy cinematography and, like, oh, man. I don't know, Theoden Origins, and it's going to be a nightmare. <laughs> no, I, I'm, I, I'm sticking with Tom Bombadil Quantumania. You know it's going to happen, oh. so... <laughs> but, I, uh, will, I will write the Tom Bombadil movie. <laughs> I will do it. Just ask. All you guys have to do is ask. Yeah. Zaz. Zaz, all you got to do is just call me up. You have my phone number. There is also uh, one other news item about me, actually. I have a book coming out next year, summer 2024. Yeah. Tell us oh more about God. this book, Jared, yes, even though you've everything. actually told us several t- quite a bit over time that we haven't been able to talk about for obvious reasons. So. Yeah. Like I'm finally able to talk about it. this has been killing me not being able to be like well you know in my book we do this like, <laughs> uh, it is called the west passage it is sort of a weird fantasy um i think of it as partly horror but you know Ooh. we can link to the actual release in the show notes because i cannot remember what it says and i'm really bad at summarizing my own work <laughs> but it takes place in a vast crumbling palace take think, think of like gormenghast populated by bizarre sort of hieronymus bashian creatures and you know, existential threat arises. Mortician nun and the librarian squire have to team up to save the world, basically. It's a lot of fun. There's lots of gigantic monstrous women in it, if that's your thing. So, <laughs> Oh, that sounds like you're targeting a very specific audience. Well, so here, <laughs> my editor, please don't listen to this part. I thought that was like the hardest thing to, to sell, but they're... <laughs> Tor, is the, Tor is the publisher. Uh, yes. I landed tour. Um, the marketing is really going hard on the like monsters women aspect, and I was like, "Really? That's the interesting part." Okay, like I'm such a fool. I thought that that would not be the cool part. <laughs> so, ladies, ladies love monstrous women. <laughs> Girls love it when there's a woman who's a monster. Yeah, yeah, can't get yeah. enough. <laughs> yeah, there, like it's all about like oh the giant ladies and you know and I'm I'm like. Is that really, is their size the most interesting part? I don't know. Okay. You know, but 
You're targeting the step on me. Uh, I, yes. <laughs> contingent. I I did not intend to, but it turns out that I have. <laughs> so, wow. I, I am learning so much. <laughs> how publishing works and how marketing works. Clearly in different yeah, ways. Like I, I, I truly thought this would be a very unmarketable book because it is a lot weirder than my description made it sound. But I guess if you if you get the step on me crowd, which has been gotten. They'll do it for you. Yeah. They'll do it for you. <laughs> I am duly amazed. So, but but yes, Oriana and I have been have been uh, you know basically cheering Jared on ever since he broke the news to us that it was happening behind the scenes. As uh, mm. you know, we we certainly weren't able to tell anybody either. We we're just like mm, wink, we say. So we are very very thrilled uh, to uh, cheer him on with this. Uh, needless to say, uh, buy all the copies, etc. We will happily shill <laughs> for, yeah. for our co-host yeah, here. We'll uh, make sure you're, you know. you're going to hear it from us, and uh, you know, and uh, do everything, and you know, superstar at it and all that other stuff yeah. and all the rest of it. Pre, the one thing, pre-order, pre-order. Those are yeah. so important for, right. for new yes. authors. Pre-order the When book. there is a pre-order link. Right. <laughs> yeah. You, it will go in the show notes. It'll go in every every episode. <laughs> yeah, this, we'll, we'll just you'll just idly mention it when the time comes right. And uh, and the other thing too to note uh, that I don't think you mentioned uh, that you've illustrated it as well. Yes. Yes, it will be illustrated. That's so cool. It, That's yeah. so cool. Yes, there is a lot going on with it. <laughs> That'll be wonderful. So by all means, uh, you know, just uh, get ready to check that out. We will again be hyping the heck out of that. But, uh, before we plunge into uh, the episode in full, let's uh, look back over some of this uh, other news, shall we say? Well, the union mm-hmm. news, of course, was fantastic. Yeah, we that just, was great. You know, That's great. We can't. We them. can't. Can't cheer our HarperCollins enough. And yeah, a strike that length over the holidays is mentioned. Hey, you know, get credit to you yeah. guys sticking it through. That is uh, is really, really good to see. And it's nice to be able to, you know, start talking about certain things again. Anyway, the musical revival. This is weird. Now, initially, <laughs> we thought it was a new musical, but then yeah. it turned out, oh, it's the old one. It's like, but the old one had problems, as our episode discussed in depth. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, yeah, I don't, I'm intrigued. And like, it's kind of a shame that none of us will see it in all Mm. probability i don't i don't anticipate taking another (laughs) 10 hour plane ride across (laughs) the pond what new material will we see what new clips will we get i'm so Mm. curious like what 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 work have they done on it outside of like really retooled at least Right. In terms of the actual staging, because there's no way that you could, in a 200 seat theater, do the the Cirque du Soleil type nonsense assume, that was happening. I assume Galadriel will not be hovering in the heights as she was doing <laughs> her song and all that. We remember we were marveling at that one. So, and uh, and yeah, no, it has to be. You know, it's un- it's certainly unclear. I mean, the news was just announced a few days ago. I'm sure we'll get a little more with time, but it's absolutely unclear if there's been any new work done by the creative team. If it's just simply a straight up revival. Um, uh-huh. Um, it's certainly a new, uh, you know, it's it's not like the directors are returning or anything like that. And by default, this is meant to be scaled down. It could well be that this is, given how just given how much you know, it did not make back its money. I don't know whether <laughs> Wallace is <laughs> trying no way to. It yeah, I mean, is Wallace? Yeah, I doubt Wallace is trying to chip away at that. Whatever it is, I mean, again, it's been 15 years. My guess is nearly all the principals have just gone on and you know done other things. Of course, there was a comment years ago. That Wallace apparently was saying that he'd like to take it on a tour to Australia and New Zealand at some in some way, shape, or form. My guess is, again, given the scale of it all, that was simply not happening. He could, however, be thinking, well, maybe there is a way to retool it down to be a mm. simpler production and still.
still haven't yeah. worked. We have a play. Maybe there's a way to do this a little differently. There's the whole immersive aspect where it's you know going to be starting and ending in the gardens. That's still sort of an extra thing that I actually don't hate that. I don't hate that. Incidentally, they will be on the yeah. record as being like, oh, I could see that being fun. Yeah. I, my my objection is solely down to being extremely comfortable when anybody in a theater tries to get me to do anything. <laughs> That's the cat the the cat's problem. <laughs> yeah, like if I'm going to wander around a garden full of hobbits, they have to pretend I'm a ghost. They cannot see me. Oh yeah, no, we no we we have to only be sitting in the garden, maybe mm. eating. We cannot be no 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 no, no. no. like I can't be like Sam can't try to get me to dance or whatever. Like it's. <gasps> But you have to dance the Springle Ring. No. <laughs> this is exactly what I was thinking of, Oriana. So I'm glad you and I are a similar minds there. It's going, does that mean we get the dance? So, okay. So, you know, we'll we'll keep a casual eye on this. I, I quite honestly am slightly more interested in this than a certain second season of a certain show, yeah. so, and, uh, which is presumably continuing on, at least right now. So uh, we'll, we'll, if there's more, if there's more like remarkable, interesting news on this front, we'll note it. Otherwise, it's like, well, the drama. Uh, good luck to them. But no, the main thing is, as we mentioned, um, yeah, all these new movie. It's really the thing that gets me about this. And I, I mentioned this before is that uh, Mike DeLuca, who was one of the two guys in charge of uh, in, in charge of this new enterprise for Warner Brothers Discovery, is not an unknown name when it comes to the adaptations. He was very heavily involved on a corporate level with New Line Cinema around the time of the original movies, mm-hmm. as in fact was, uh, you know, let go rather publicly due to the fact that he was, uh, how to put this, uh, one of those uh, white guys who screwed up is the best way to put it. There's a there's a confessional article that we'll link in the show notes sometime back. You know, this is public knowledge about how, you know, how various forms of an awful person, but he's better now. Well, maybe. Mm. But how interesting mm. is it that some people get second chances like that? Let's put it that right. way. Mm. Yeah, you know, it's sort of mm. like, I, mm, you know, and all that. And we'll, again, it's all too vague. Zaslev is too much of a, you know, cross. Um, there's all sorts of there's there's all sorts of bad vibes already is the best way to put it. It's kind of weird. And I'm I don't know, although we do want Oriana to get a film. So, uh, you know, yeah, we'll, that's, we'll, yeah. you know, we'll, we'll take I, back I will, everything I will, we said. If you know, <laughs> I, will, I will dispel the bad vibes personally if you can just give me a movie. But if the product comes out, not as I in line with my vision, I will I will promptly disavow it. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I, I'll know. pull a, a Doug Lyman on uh, the Bourne identity. <laughs> Where he, like, uh, apparently, you know, he, Doug Lyman was complaining quite a bit about Universal in the aftermath of the release of The Bourne Identity. Mm. And a Universal executive literally told him that they would ensure he never worked in this town again. Uh, so I'm looking forward to having that happen. <laughs> you see, we're just planning all our moves here. It's what we do on By the Bywater. We're just <laughs> yeah. looking ahead. So Very strategic thinkers here. Yeah, exactly. So, so who knows with this? Nah, you know, we'll just have to see, you know, it, it, it resolves a certain issue that was always up in the air when Embracer got the rights and there were noises about, you know, potentially going a third route as it is. What uh, is perversely interesting about this, if that is the word is now Amazon's production is even more hung out to dry on its own Mm -hmm. in its own universe. So that'll be boy, you know, (laughs) well, welcome to the weird world we're in now, folks. (laughs) It is like thinking about this. It is. I don't know exactly what happened, you know, how Embracer did this deal, because it's weird to me that Warner Brothers Discovery, I guess it was Warner Media when when this Mm. was happening, Mm. Uh, but it's odd to me that they themselves did not 
attempt and maybe they did and we just didn't hear about it to get these rights themselves and right lock them up internally mm. i that's so interesting to me how was this done under cover of night like <laughs> I, just uh, you know i need some sort of tiktok not the app like the type of story yes <laughs> uh that that takes you through all the all the lead up to a deal i really want one of those so if any if any like entertainment journalists out there have the clout to do that or listening please <laughs> please explain how this happened and we will know that uh, as of yet uh, there's no zero indication about what exactly this means in terms of whether or not the War of the Hiram anime will just be now sort of a hanging there one-off as further plans are developed, or if that's going to become more central. We'll see. Mm -hmm. It could come down to how successful it is when it comes out next year, and that is still on the cards. Production is continuing. We know that much. The the Jackson team was looped in for a comment, and uh, that could mean anything. I really doubt they're going to be directly involved, but... God, isn't he just... Uh, He's like, got to be so tired. So right tired. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of my thought. It's sort I of like <sighs> it's it's been half. It's been a quarter of a century. Time has moved on, yeah. and he's hip deep in the Avatar movies because because you know, Cameron went down Weta. there, and that's yeah. and Weta and Stone Street and all that. That's that's where they're filming those. So they're doing those. You know, he's he's not. You know, Jackson's not hurting for money. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, he he's certainly isn't. Busy. I mean, Oriana said the only circumstances under which you'd accept <laughs> is if you had to write a movie. Um, yeah, I would just I would want just an entirely different take. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, I know in my heart, it's just going to be a watered down imitation of the Jackson movies. Mm-hmm. I know it's going to be that because that's what everybody thinks Lord of the Rings looks like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. What I want <laughs> is for maybe each movie looks totally different. I don't know. Maybe like just for it to be right. a different take and it's not going to be that, but I want it to be that. <laughs> Yeah, we dare to dream. But yeah, no, we will. We will see. We will note further that they were explicit, at least for now, on record saying that they weren't planning on doing any remakes of the Lord of the Rings film trilogy. Okay, and uh, well, we'll see. So again, life goes on. Uh, But let's talk about something else. Let's talk about uh, something a little more freeing. Let's talk about the choice of subject this time, which is well timed given Jared's announcement, and that's precisely the plan. It is. It is Jared's choice of topic. So please, the floor is yours i did pick this hoping that i'd be able to announce the the book (laughs) on the same episode and be like now i can maybe talk about process like as somebody who you know builds fantasy worlds apparently Mm -hmm. (laughs) be able to like sound like i've been talking about and not just be like some weirdo on the internet but (laughs) you know it's a thin line line. (laughs) (laughs) so world building Yay! Um, <laughs> funny story. When you go to the Wikipedia article for world building, the map of Middle Earth is the page image. Oh my god! Yeah, mm. that's the end of the funny story. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I knew I'd be in over my head here, like trying to talk about his like Tolkien's world building, and I was right. Um, <laughs> what I kind of in, intended, like what I've been thinking of when I picked this topic, was to look at his influence here because he's foundational to modern fantasy. You might have heard. <laughs> um, you're either like Terry Pratchett famously said something like you're either like he's like mount fuji you're either looking at him or you're standing on him 
mm. whatever that quote is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's kind of the problem. Like it's too it's too big, and that's also a blessing because there's just so much, and we don't have to talk about it all. <laughs> we'll see where it goes. He's not Tolkien is not the first to build imaginary worlds. Nobody's the first. It's a thing we do when we're kids. Mm. But there's a specific sort of like I want to say granular world building mm. that you can think of him as launching, and you know what I'm talking about because you've read or seen any fantasy of the last 50 years like there's a, there's a world it might be related to ours it might not be it has lands with funny names the story might visit some of them it might not there's a map there's politics there's cities various cultures for the protagonists to wander into there might be gods there might be consistent naming conventions that don't refer to anything outside the story it's a world intended to be believable on its own terms i kind of again feel like i don't need to define this kind of world building as what people think of as world building but what i kind of wanted to look at I guess, is what did it mean to him? But also, why did this become the kind of world building that everybody does? As far as what it meant to him, we've talked about subcreation a lot, which is an umbrella under which he'd probably put world building. Um, it's the other main driver of his creative process alongside <laughs> language. Subcreation basically just means working with the tools of creation, of reality, you know, the real world to produce something new. For him, this was kind of a religious experience like if you like literally um if you read his letters he's always like i mean just do that anyway but he's talking about it as if it's almost a form of meditation or prayer mm. um because since since god is a creator and humans are made in his image and tolkien was catholic logically humans must be creators themselves and i think this 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 belief in the sort of sacredness of fiction really mm. suffuses his work and i think that's part of where the the power comes from because he famously hated allegory mm-hmm. you might have heard um <laughs> but you, you, you can see in his world building the way he works through a sort of set of logic problems to kind of reconcile catholic morality with his own mm-hmm. interest in various mythologies and with his experiences in world war one like the world of arda is created by a, a good question mark omnipotent god and yet the most horrible evils are permitted to exist within it kind of like our world depending on what you believe and this allows him to put forward theories of why the world might work this way and examine things like you know the big questions free will fate good evil jewelry all you know all of that in a way that defamiliarizes them and sets them apart it's important to examine really get into jewelry it is so important to look no, we're at not, that. we're not there, there is uh, a lot of there is a lot of jewelry there's so, so much jewelry <laughs> Again, I would I would say this is part of why his world building is endlessly fascinating. He kind of he thought that a, a world feeling expansive and true to life would make its moral exploration more gripping, whereas allegory, where nothing can exist that doesn't feed into the message, can come across as kind of airless and moralizing, which is not the same as having a moral. And a, a story set in a world that feels real but isn't can get its point across in a much more nuanced way than one set in a world that doesn't feel real and isn't, and in a much, much different way than a story set in the real world itself. It's kind of like, it's like pulling concepts from the real world and putting them into the sort of terrarium. Like, you don't necessarily see their natural behavior, but you do see new aspects of their behavior. Mm. Um, a petri dish. If you have <laughs> reptiles, I'm sure. It's this, yeah. There's a, a connection, too, you can draw to the way he thought about constructed languages. We went into this in our episode on A Secret Vice, um, how creating a language to express meaning allows you to explore meaning, as well as language itself, in a new way. So creating a world, similarly, allows you to explore meaning and the world itself in a new way. I, that might be a, a thing to come back to during this <laughs> episode. Um, and again, this is the kind of topic, I think, where it's easy to be incredibly general and vague about it, or incredibly specific. So I'm going to finish up my meandering now. And my first question, which might be more an Oriana question, or <laughs> a me question, since, <laughs> since I don't Ned, I don't know if you've ever tried your hand at this kind of fiction, but I'm curious if either of you have any experience doing 
th- like this kind of world building? And if so, what were you trying to achieve with it? All right, Ariana, kick it off. Me first? Oh, yes. no. Yes, I have done this several times um, to varying degrees. Like some of the stories that I have told um, take place in a world much like ours, but, you know, there is a, some kind of catastrophe that has happened that has mm-hmm. changed things and thinking through those changes. I have also attempted worlds that are much less based on ours. I think I'm less successful in doing that. I think, and for me, I think part of that just stems from, I I can see images in my head and try to translate them into words, but the opposite is, so I have like a lot of trouble with, with taking abstraction and putting it into words. I'm Mm -hmm. much better when I have actually experienced a thing. Yeah, well, right. What do you know? The old yeah, like going off of that mm-hmm. exactly. It's much easier for me to do that. But it is this. It's always so interesting thinking about using world building as this lens, as this mm-hmm. sort of magnifying glass on how do you experience the world? What is the world to you? And how do you recreate, or how do you use that to? create your own i'll stop there (laughs) uh and let ned and jared talk about that well throw my hat into the ring uh i have not done anything quite as systematically or at least in terms of some sort of you know persistent creative outlet uh as you two have um it's not that i haven't tried um i still look back with fondness of the time when i was actually doing nanorimo and if you know you know uh, for a while there in the 2000s um most of which however were just essentially um sort of genre exercises or things that were uh, one was particularly very interior um another one oddly enough uh the first one i ever did even though the scenario was completely different i basically used believe it or not the hobbit as a model for action within it because i'm like well i know it works when i just do <laughs> yeah. this it was it was by no means anything anything like the hobbit but it was sort of like uh the beats and the pacing sure mm-hmm. and i had a weird idea that if i ever did a sequel to it i would actually just go straight on lotr even know how it ends <laughs> so, and all that so but again it, these this is stuff set in the modern quote unquote the modern world etc but yeah no these what you're hinting at the sense of you know whether it's you know the details and the depths and the things like this these are the type of things that i tend to more appreciate seeing what others do than me teasing out that impulse on my own uh my uh, writing as such is more or less you know mostly non-fiction reflective yeah the personal essay crossed with mm-hmm. all the eight million music reviews i've done which is what i'm most well known for so <laughs> it is not that again i don't have random ideas but that's really all they are my own particular stumbling block for anything in depth is that I'm really fun uh, fun with descriptions. I'm terrible with dialogue. This is my deep <laughs> weakness, and I will I will I, I I stumble across that every time. So pretty much that's another reason why it's sort of like you know I can do interior reflections, but that's kind of about it. And that's not necessarily what people are necessarily coming to fiction for. Maybe there are exceptions, but to get to the point then of world building, yeah, the closest thing I think I've gotten to that. Um, and again, Nanorama was a good hook. There is one particular story. 
I've always wanted to tell. And I found the way to tell it was to actually go much more imaginative and strange. Um, to get into it would take far too long to explain. I basically stalled out at the halfway point. It draws on a, an example of family history. That gave me the anchor. But then I, uh, after a while, I realized that instead of actually telling the story straight up, and when I say family history, we're talking like you know late 1890s. This is deep family history. There's mm-hmm. nothing nearby, and there's very little detail. Uh, that gave me some scope to sort of the to turn the idea into something much more imaginative, strange, and unusual, um, and to try and make this sort of thing where you know sort of something that is quote unquote not reality bleeds over into reality. It might be something I could I could still explore, but it's the type of thing that I almost found myself at the turning point of going like I don't know where this lands, mm-hmm. and without mm-hmm. making sure how it lands, I can't make sure I know need the world to <laughs> develop and gel in a way that I think would sort of satisfy essentially of the three main protagonists something that would tie it all together in a way that actually makes sense. Um, so, and that's a this is more a creative writing problem, variously per, yeah. <laughs> per se, than a world building problem. But there is something about the perception about how the characters see this world and how they interact within it that is sort of the thing that's uh, going on there. It's sort of like uh, I essentially transformed what was a formal late Victorian setting into something else entirely. But again, I couldn't sort of found myself going. And then I stopped. And then it's, it's and I've had I've had one friend who still asked me almost fifteen years later, You're gonna finish that? And I'm like, I don't know how. <laughs> so maybe one day, maybe that'll be the one the one thing I actually do as a full length thing I'm satisfied with. But it 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 is and I'm living in the city it's meant to be referring to, and I still haven't figured out how to do it. So so that that's kind of that's kind of my extent of it. But that's kind of a sort of smaller scope type thing, maybe than the way you're talking about there, Jared, because my sense of it is, and this is maybe a question to you, sir spark things off is the the one reason why I think Tolkien himself might be seen as sort of this is the perception of depth. And mm-hmm. when I say perception yes. of depth, this is the comment I've, I've we've paraphrased it before, and it's the great comment about how basically after the book was a success, everybody who was specialists in very particular areas wanted to know more about X or yeah, Y or yeah, Z. Yeah, yeah. And you know, the geologists want to know more about rock formation, the linguists want to know more about language, etc. And uh, and this perception of depth is precisely precisely why I think so many people grabbed onto it and used it as a model because it was at once immediately inviting and had more details, quote unquote, beyond the realms we know. But mm-hmm. Throwing that back to you, if you want to use that as a launching point. That's it's interesting to compare that kind of hinting at depth that he does with a lot of his imitators mm-hmm. or people who were influenced by him without being like imitating. I see a lot of modern fantasy doing this thing where everything that is mentioned in the story needs to have a purpose within the story itself, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is personally irritating to me that is not a value judgment that is just it bothers me when that happens partly because i grew up on tolkien doing the opposite yeah (laughs) i think that this kind of ties into a lot of stuff that we have been talking about over the course of the podcast so far is that perception of death allows of death wow of depth um (laughs) that too the death episode (laughs) um allows for you to feel like you are part of this world in a way that a more airtight kind of world building does not or airtight kind of writing i guess which is for me in the i forget what my point originally was but i'm gonna talk about my book now (laughs) Um, Feel free. I was consciously trying not to build a world 
because I didn't want to get bogged down in the details and start thinking that they had to matter. So characters will mention things repeatedly that actually have no bearing on the story because they don't understand their own history, and that's a big part of it. In Lord of the Rings, people do generally understand their own history, and that's a different, like, that helps with some things. In this, it might have just, I didn't want to get into that. I didn't want it to be about making every detail matter. So I don't know if it has the same perception of depth at all. It it may or it may not, but I'm trying a different kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Than, than he is, I think, where it's like, I'm not asking, I'm not creating a world with clearly defined good and evil powers or, or whatever, because that's not the question I'm interested in answering. Yeah, I think that is one thing that is constantly annoying to me about screenwriting and the screenwriting kind of world. You, you get notes from everyone in the world <laughs> when you write any kind of script and many, many, many of the notes are, I don't understand this. Yeah. And oftentimes it is small elements that are world building that, that uh, I'm just like, that's, that is like, these elements are there solely to give that perception of depth. The audience does not need me to explain this. You do not need to understand this. The fact that it exists does not mean that you need to know everything about it. I know that there is sort of this impulse to delve and to understand, like, and that's what brings people to books and and media in general. But there is this kind of steadfast refusal on the part of a number of executives and writers themselves to simply not let the mystery be. And it is Mm -hmm. profoundly obnoxious (laughs) obnoxious <laughs> yeah I, I think i think from a you could say for the way i would put it, from a consumer point of view we see we see two things that have sort of been driven almost to like insane levels of really and that is one is the che- what can be what can be sort of popularly understood as the checkoff's gun scenario in other words if you show something it has to have mm. a meaning down the line now that is something that was expressed in a you know in a particular uh, dramatic context about live theater however the idea is that you know it you know and obviously there are works of art wherein everything is indeed tying into the whole fine mm-hmm. but there's this idea that if it actually applies across the board not really the case um, and uh, you know what's so fascinating about so many things especially the older and one can say less systemized tales and mythologies and things come down to there are fragments and things that fly out there and just to be incorporated that who knows they come from where there wasn't any sense of you know putting it all together you tie that in as well and this is probably one of the reasons why I think we're all like me about the uh, new film <laughs> plans here is that all you have to do is look at something like to use a syncretic mythology, uh, uh, cosmology, uh, something like Star Wars, Star Trek to a degree too, mm-hmm. and increasingly it seems Marvel, etc., and all that, where it's sort of like, we will explain every last little bit. Everything <laughs> has to be accounted for. Right. Everything. We need to know how Han Solo got his name. We need to know where the dice in his ship came from. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't need to know. I'm so sorry. I don't. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's sort of like things can, things can just be, similarly things can just be here. I mean, something as a world-building detail, this is kind of maybe skew-whiff from what we've just been talking about, but something that sort of keeps rattling in my brain uh, as an example of something Al Tolkien, you know, was able to get perceived depth was how to have a character comment on events inside the story in a way that makes sense to us as readers because it yeah. feels right. And that is one of my secret favorite characters, Eorith, in, uh, yeah. in, in Minas Tirith. <laughs> She's who, so great. Um, 
when she when she is when she's who is on the one hand a bit of a stereotype dur. On the other hand, I absolutely love the moment where she is featured in the coronation ceremony, yeah. not directly, yeah. but commenting on it to her, you know, hick cousin or wherever is coming <laughs> to town, which I always thought was hilarious. And she's explaining that that's so and so and things like that. And I'm like, yeah. that's the type of thing that I can imagine people doing at a big event or something like that. And you're just mm-hmm. explaining, yeah. yeah, that's the deal. You know, the the modern joke you see on you know social media or elsewhere where you know something happens in a movie theater and you turn to your person sitting next to you and say, hey, that's so and so, where you're tendentiously <laughs> over explaining it. You yeah. know, it, it's that type of thing because it's sort of like, yeah, you know, that's recognizable human behavior, and it's a it's it's a strange thing to call that world building, but it suddenly gives the idea that you know events aren't just simply grand proclamations. They're mm-hmm. the people just sort of like hovering in the mm-hmm. background and stories going like, ah, you know, how long is this going to take? You know, where's the restroom? You know, things where's like the that. food? Where's the food? There's this uh, realism as a double-edged sword. <laughs> Partly because realism as a concept is not really a thing. Like in fiction, it's still not, it's not real. It's not reality. It's never going to be reality. It's fiction. <laughs> um, but the like to compare and contrast uh, what people mean when they say realism, I guess, is like in Lord in Lord of the Rings. There's all these little details, the perception of depth, and all of that, and it feels real. Partly because so much is allowed to just go unexplained. And that's kind of, you know, if you just walk down the street, you're going to be like, I don't know where that building came from. It's just been there. Mm-hmm. I don't know the order. I live near a place where Ted Bundy used to live. Like, that's not part of my overall narrative. I, it's <laughs> just there. Like, mm-hmm. um, I hope it's not part of my overall right. narrative. I shouldn't have. <laughs> oh this, is God, foreshadowing. this is foreshadowing. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, I will lock my doors very securely. But if you, even, like, even set within the same, allegedly the same universe, if you look at, like, the way the Rings of Power kind of overutilizes the world with things like the Mithril being all of a sudden the most important thing in the universe mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. it's not and there's no reason for it to be or like all of all of the things that it does that we complain about in that episode which is i think a very good episode yes um <laughs> agreed it's like that's that's like again heavy air quotes realistic world building taken too far where everything is in there because it matters like you have mm-hmm. to think of like it's all facts it's all uh it's, you know, it's all there it's again it's like accounting instead of storytelling yeah it feels kind of like you know to take like the term world building really literally yes. it's like they are building a house that has no inti- like no inti- it's just you have to all... climb into the window there's no door yeah mm-hmm. and it's not that's not to say that you can't do that kind of like everything now has a function in the plot thing well like um nk jemison's oh what is the trilogy broken earth oh, trilogy yeah. yeah yeah she teaches like seminars on world building and everything like she knows what yeah. she's doing and everything in her book does that thing that generally i hate where it's anything mentioned is going to be a plot element however like minor or major but she does it really really well so it works <laughs> yeah and it's never it's never like this thing mentioned in passing is all of a sudden the most important thing in the world it's like no this d- dangerous animal that you see from distance will one day like chase you like it's, mm. it's that kind of thing is fine but she's and she's doing it in kind of in some of the same ways that Tolkien is where it's built this way so that she can explore ethical mm. questions and it's not she's not just answering silly questions that arise out of the world building like oh where did the metal come from or or whatever mm-hmm. this is it's a good series <laughs> one one of the i i like dune the book i but mm-hmm. i actually mm-hmm. 
there was, it took me several tries to read it because there is like a huge barrier in my own personal opinion. Everyone can feel free to disagree. (laughs) But for me, there was a huge barrier in the first kind of hundred pages or so where there's like chunks where they just, they have mentioned a bunch of stuff Mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, in conversation and I'm like, cool, I don't know what any of this stuff is, but whatever, I'm rolling with it. And then there's just like a chunk where they will just explain everything they kind of in a row. just sit around and explain things to each other. It's... And I was like, this is not really doing it for me. Um, and <laughs> I love again, it like, so much. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but, I, like, <laughs> I, I ended up, you know, really enjoying it. But that was that was a huge barrier to entry to me. I think in part because I was used to a very different style of immersion, yeah. let's call it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this uh, this puts me in mind uh, sort of like I'm thinking about and and obviously this is to some degree uh this is to some degree rather limited in terms of just talking about just what we could say, you know, basic fiction. In other words, you know, words on a page as opposed to say creative graphic novels and other things like that and other ways to which create a world building thing where it's as much visual as it is as mm-hmm. it is textual, etc. So and you know, again, one can also lead into other things as well. I mean, uh, personally, I think a really good example of uh world building that was was done strictly in cinema, but was built up for it with the work on it is something like the, to use an English language example, one of my favorites, uh, The Dark Crystal. Um, which, yeah. which famously, while a syncretic project from Henson and Oz, and then, of course, a team built on it, Brand Froud, of course, being very heavily involved with it, is something that there was a lot of time spent in saying, okay, what does this world look like and how does it work and all that mm-hmm. before filming it? And the ideas are like, okay, we have a sense of what this is, how even some of the biology works, things like that. How do we represent it on screen? And they do it in a way where they don't hit you over the head with it. You get a very like quick narrative introduction, narrator introduction, and then you're off. And that's yeah. really all you need. And then you're off and running. And the world, to my mind, functions very well as a creative world. But then let's step back to, uh, to again, sort of like, you know, straightforward fiction version of it. Okay, let's use a couple of examples here. Um, we mentioned we mentioned Herbert as a good example. Um, we mentioned, uh, we obviously, Tolkien's in one, Le Guin. Earthsea mm-hmm. is kind of my other things. So all three of these, to use these three as specific examples, one of which is an alternate Earth, one of which is uh, you know an alternate history for Earth, one of which is essentially some place, some or some Earth-like world, except it's mostly water, thus Earthsea, and then finally something that is explicitly science fiction and is some sort of far distant world. All three of them have senses of history built into them, and it's not yeah. that mm-hmm. history itself equals world building. That's very dumb you can create all sorts of background annals and nothing may happen yeah. and uh, and in uh, and in the case of course of Tolkien we could say his deal was that unlike unlike Le Guin and uh, Herbert in comparison he literally had been working on something for decades he had his mm-hmm. own built-in history of a thing to build on from there thus the sense of that again perception of death he's literally writing on the ruins of the past civilizations and mm-hmm. wars that he had come up with and then extending it further so that's a difference from uh, from where where they're coming from, but but uh, but both Herbert and Le Guin and and Tolkien, um, all of them are trying to sort of feel their way forward, saying, okay, what are the particular rules, the unspoken rules in some cases of these uh, of these situations? Some of which, as Orion just pointed out, explicitly, you know, one character is informed by another. Here is the deal, because you do not know, <laughs> or I am in a new context. What is going on here? Or you know, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> which is like half of Dune. Yeah, you know, <laughs> ecology. Sit 
down and let me explain a few things to you. <laughs> so, and the spice bribes, et cetera, et cetera. Other things are the more workaday stuff. Again, one of the things I absolutely just adore about Earthsea is that magic is not some sort of, you know, deep textual lore. It's more like I am the equivalent of a blacksmith. I am doing this yeah. basic work. Mm-hmm. I am being trained in it. And it is workaday. It feels right. Um, something who is a sort of heir to that would be someone like uh, Stephen Erickson, the uh, the book of Malazan, and the sense that there are things that everyone knows what they are, but they're not explicitly delving into explaining mm-hmm. what they are because everyone knows what they are. You know, that that is a case of, you know, it's the alternate approach where Alan was saying, you know, you can either have your character explain it, as you know, Bob, or you can <laughs> simply do it. You're trying to figure out, I'll try and figure it out from context later. So, and, uh, you know, and these are, but all, all of these show the different sort of ways that uh, that uh, the specialties that people were working in did, Herbert did some, was doing some work with the ecological work and things like that in Oregon. Uh, and that still helps smire the idea. We have, uh, we have Le Guin, of course, anthropology out of her ears. We have Tolkien, hmm. you know, come there's there's I think there there is something to the fact that there is some sort of level of formal academic understanding and training of all three of these authors. And of course there are plenty of other authors too. We mentioned Jemison. There are many other ones we can mm-hmm. throw in. Even some even something, and I'll end on this point, a good example of how a world can be built in a way that again gives that sense of death in even a quote unquote simpler way is someone like Lloyd Alexander in the Chronicles of Prydain, which um, has the advantage that his backstory stories for that were created after the fact. He was drawing on Welsh mythology he had something to work with mm-hmm. but he was creating his own world with it and you got a sense that he was exploring it all and there were contexts the uh, you know whether it's Dalvin, whether it's where you know hen when the pig came from whether it's this <laughs> whether it's that and taron is feeling his way forward through all the books going like what's the deal <laughs> and things like this and just sort of getting used to things so it's a different dynamic but there are ways to do it in there and it's not just as i said just history it's in how characters communicate with each other it's how mm-hmm. they inter- understand the world around them and to bring it back to Tolkien, I mean, it's just so wonderfully well done in many yeah. points. That's the thing of it. That really is the thing of it. I think for me, the the line that like reflects Tolkien's world building prowess the most, or at least the one that like really, really sticks with me is when Aragorn is talking about how, you know, the cats of Queen Beruthiel. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the mm-hmm. one that just like it it's immediately like understandable to the mm-hmm. reader you don't actually you don't need to know the historical context you don't need to know who queen Boruthiel is but the fact that there was one and that she had cats like it's just such an <laughs> impeccably crafted reference slash yeah. sentence it's just like you know it's a really good north star i think if if you're trying to figure out how to just add these nice little touches the uh, you know drop in some texture into your into your world the example the sort of similar example that i always think of is of like a, a, a reference that doesn't actually tell you anything except that this thing exists mm-hmm is uh in the barrow in fellowship of the ring and you don't really know where the barrows came from you just know they're kind of cursed places that's it the hobbits are kind of like oh you've heard of these i think they're bad like they don't really know for sure but when they're captured by a barrow white and there's this whole like creepy horror sequence and all that when they and they get out of there and they've been like freed from this enchantment and mary says something about the men of Karn Doom mm-hmm. came after mm-hmm. us or, mm-hmm. and we were worsted. I forget mm-hmm. the exact phrasing. And it's like, you don't know anything about Karn Doom. You don't know any of that. You just mm-hmm. know that this history that has not really been part of their lives suddenly just interrupts into it. Mm-hmm. And that's it. I mean, they get the cool knives out of it and all that. But <laughs> that 
moment, I like when I was a kid coming across that for the first time, I was like, oh my God, what is that? Like how, yeah. what is going on here? And you never find out. Yeah. I mean, if you mm-hmm. read the appendices, it's a, it's kind of in there in a summarized form, but it's not part of, it's not part of the plot. Um, and it's just this, such an eerie experience for everybody involved. And I, <laughs> if you read my book, it'll make a lot of sense to you why that's the one I'm thinking <laughs> of all the time. Read the book, read the book. Yeah, read the book. <laughs> but the way that this the characters' lives in Lord of the Rings are reckoning with one part of the world's history for mm-hmm. most of the story because they have to get rid of this ancient evil ring and they're like mm-hmm. traveling through historic places and all of that. But there are all these moments where kind of an other part of history intrudes on their lives, mm-hmm. good or evil. And just that happening makes it feel like such a well-rounded functioning universe, mm-hmm. even if it's a completely fantastical thing, like Mary remembering some dead guy's memories. Hmm. The it's, it's only occurred to me now, another sort of interesting detail, and of course we did have our food episode, is that, uh, again, Tolkien does not talk about food much. In a weird way, this actually yeah. helps world building precisely because the notable meals get attention the quotidian mm. ones don't. Yeah. There is, for instance, to give you a good example, we know the Fellowship uh, takes a fair amount of time to get from Rivendell to Moria. We have zero detail about what they're eating the whole time. We have zero yeah. detail about how landing of that. It's not important. It's just simply accepted. It's what's there. Um, another sort of example, and again, this may be something that shows uh, Tolkien's strength, is that he has a, and this kind of, it's, it's, it's kind of building on what Oriana said. That's a r- wonderful depth of deal. The idea that language has built-in references that again, you know, people understand and don't mm-hmm. need to tangentially explain. Another good example are all the various proverbs that he comes up with. Yeah. Some, yeah. Some, of, some of which are obviously derived or have equivalents of, you could say, the real world, but other ones feel like, you know, they could be self-contained, very much a more middle-earth thing on its own or something like that. These senses of how it's sort of like you don't need to have someone explain the simile or metaphor to you. You just take it on board and go like, okay. And then, you know, yeah. and, they, and which is, of course, you know, which which is, again, also the Goriana's point with the Korean Ruthier reference. It's exactly meant to be that, you know, it explains it without having to tendentiously explain it. Um, mm-hmm. And again, that's that certainly reflects Tolkien's strength when it comes to world. But it's true. I mean, how often do we use all sorts of like, you know, bits or fragments, even if we're not closely quoting proverbs at each other. We're quoting turns of phrase. We're, we're quoting, quoting vines. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, these definitely are important. I do think it. There's a sort of common misconception of Tolkien as being extremely granular, and he's actually not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a lot you don't know, like what's Aragorn's tax policy, but like what are this like the sewers of Minas Tirith? You know, there's a lot that isn't actually there because it doesn't need to be talked about. And I think that's one place where some of his imitators fall down is having to be like, well, here's where the sewage is going. And it's like, it's a city that they're taking care of that. It's fine. You don't actually need to know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not in, you know, given that the Lord of the Rings is a history book in, in some sense. The, the, the audience yeah, where know, your... like the, the in-universe audience knows already or wouldn't yeah. need to know. They're just like, it's a city. Like, it's like, <laughs> where, in your, where in your history book do they talk about the, sewers of i mean unless it's like you know i mean if it's rome they talk about it a lot because every (laughs) every history book gets really into the sewers of rome but for some reason yeah (laughs) they just really wanted to know it's all those aqueducts let me tell you i actually actually did uh take we we took a 
tour of a museum. It's, I think, at the Canal House Museum in Amsterdam, which is interesting, Mm. that talks about the creation of the canal system from its earliest days and the introduction of, uh, like, a a more modern sewage system and how most of the houses on the inner ring of Amsterdam, like, didn't get sewage until until 1980. Oh, I knew it was going to be some horrifying number. I didn't expect (laughs) it to be that horrifying. (laughs) (laughs) We... We, I suppose we could go down further this road, but uh, that would take us a little further afield. <laughs> Some real world building. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah. You know, where's the parking in Minas Tirith? What? You know, and all you put your chariots over there. <laughs> the so, but uh, but um, keeping an eye on the time, maybe we should move into sort of a wrap-up mode. Um, on my own, if I have a final thought, it, it, world building as a concept is one of those things that, uh, you know, I would say less is more is oh, kind of what works for me best, and I think we'd all agree with that. You you provide enough, and then people can sort of add on to that. I've been doing a lot of uh, thinking about uh, just uh, some of the work of one of my favorite all-time authors, another English author, another academic, and uh, about a generation earlier than Tolkien, uh, the uh, short story, uh, horror short story writer, uh, M.R. James, yeah. who, uh, you know, he's, his things are set in our world, or earlier versions of our world, but the man is atmosphere brilliantly down, and he puts you right into it very very well. He matches certainly with his knowledge with that. And again, they're short stories. They're eventually contained. It's just enough. And it's it's so vivid at its best when he puts you into things, whether it's simply, you know, the modern tale of a Boy Scout troop that stumbles across something or something that's strictly <laughs> antiquarian records. They're just, it's it's very well done. Um, there is no one approach, but uh, I find that uh, I find that if you hint and let people you know, let you as the reader sort of fill in things or just speculate or just sort of like, oh, and all that, it, 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 it comes rich as a result, as it rather, instead of having to turn to an appendix every 20 words and going like, what is this again? So, you know, that'd be my take. I think there is a tendency amongst newer or younger writers to think of world building as sort of a checklist. You have mm-hmm. to include mm-hmm. this element, this element, this element. You know, you have to create a language. You have to create, you know, you have to know all of these things. As, rather than, as a checklist, that's way more important than it actually is, too. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think that if you are someone who enjoys, just let things take you. Tolkien and all, you know, stuff just popped up. Like, he rolled yeah. with it. Like Treebeard. Like, that's a huge exactly. element of world building that just happened. And he was like, okay, well, i got to make this work now. And then he did. Well, now I have these talking trees. How yeah. do I explain mm-hmm. this? Got to go back and edit the Silmarillion. Like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Jared, do close it out. Oh, this this feels like the start of a new discussion, but one thing that we didn't really get into is the way that he, because he was so freaking Catholic, um, <laughs> the way he looks at things like divine grace or fate mm. or cosmic intervention in the lives of his characters as something that, like, in quote-unquote goodwill building, you wouldn't have because... Mm this god can do whatever this god wants to do why isn't this god wanting to do it like it creates all these problems but i think that's one of the most interesting and powerful parts of of this story um even if i don't agree with him on a lot of other stuff is that this feels like a universe where any anything can happen in a in a good way like divine grace can just intrude on your life and be like actually the quest is going to turn out okay which has its detractors as a concept like it's just a bedtime story because everything will be fine. And it's like, no, clearly it won't for most of these people. <laughs> yeah. A lot of these people are dead already. It's not going to kind of find. But that kind of world building, heavier quotes, I suppose. I don't really know. I think it's part of why 
the book is still so fascinating is that there mm. is this this system of divinity that's operating unseen and you just get little mm. hints of it and the way that he looks uses that to look at things like coincidence and pity and love and emotional transformation as drivers of the story is really really cool um mm. and it's not again it's not like good world building <laughs> but it's his world building <laughs> All right, time to look ahead to the next episode and the topic for it. The choice of topic has come back around to me, so it's that time. It's April. <laughs> it's our anniversary episode. Our first one was April 2019, but April also means April Fool's Day, and for the last oh, few God. years I've been springing things on my co-hosts that oh, usually make them go no. like, do we have to? And <laughs> I'm like, oh, well, I don't know. But now, what I'm about to uh, say we're going to do is something that uh, we're actually recording this uh, fairly quickly, so we uh, it'll be just a couple of weeks from now. We're sort of getting back under our schedule where we'll have the episodes start coming out more at the start of the month like we normally do. Uh, so we needed something uh, light, something we know, something I said I wouldn't uh, make them do before, but I think we gotta, mm. I think we have to. We've been touching on this adaptation and that thing over time and all the rest of it, but my friends... I have a knife ready. <laughs> yeah, you should have that knife ready. You thought it was going to be this last year, it turned out to be something else. That's when we talked about Backsheet's Lord of the Rings, but it's time, my friends. The Rankin-Bass Return of the King. Oh, oh, I knew it. You knew it was coming because when there's a whip, there's a way. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to watch it now. (laughs) One last time. (laughs) I don't want to watch it. I think this is the loudest Jared has ever been on the podcast. I think so, too. I think I have broken the poor man. (laughs) You know, believe me. As I said, we need to think of this even as a good venting session. <laughs> there we go. Oh, boy. You know, and hey, it's shorter than Rings of Power. In fact, I think it's about the same length as a typical episode of Rings of Power. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. okay. Bright okay. side, Maybe I could eh? deal Bright with side? it for that. Yeah. If I could get through the Rings of Power, I could get through this. You can get through this. Straight shot, and then you never have to think about it again. But, uh, yeah, uh, no, it, uh, I'll detail my own history with this thing. This is the, it's, uh, it is it is unfortunately formative for me in my association with Tolkien. Yeah. <laughs> Alas. <laughs> so, and, uh, oh, it'll give me an excuse to talk about some other stuff. But, yes, we'll all have a chance to say this. Yeah, the, the Rankin-Bass Hobbit, this is not. They, they produced it, but mm, mm, we'll have more to say. <laughs> so, anyway, that'll be in uh, just a few weeks here. So just have a chance to watch again and oh, hey, hey. <laughs> this will be fun in quotes. Um, but uh, more seriously, in terms of something better than that, yeah, that is going to be our 49th episode, of course. But the episode after that will be our 50th. And that is something we are planning on doing something rather, rather more elevated for, if you will, at least definitely different. As we said before, this is going to be our first live episode. And when we said live initially, the idea would be sort of like three of us in one place actually recording it. And I think the initial idea was that maybe just sort of like, you know, meet up somewhere in, you know, in Portland and just have a chance to chat uh, room, just have something fun that way. It's since become more elaborate. Now, we do not have exact, <laughs> we don't have full exact details to share quite yet, but we do have a date. The idea will be that this will actually be a live recording in front of an audience if you're able to show Ooh. up. Of course, we don't expect everyone in the world to show up to Portland on this date. Be nice if you can, though, so if you happen to be in the area or just in the Pacific 
Pacific Northwest and can make it, please do. It is going to be on a weekend. If you are available on Saturday, April 22nd to be in Portland, that is where we will have a recording of the episode in the evening. It will be part of a larger thing that is being organized by our wonderful uh, host uh, of um, at Megaphonic, uh, Chris Puma, will be flying out for it. Uh, there may, in fact, be more than one podcast in the network that will have an episode recorded at this uh, event. We still don't know the details. Things are still very much in flux, but that is the idea. All three of us will be there to uh, do an episode, and there may, as I said, be other podcast episodes recorded. We'll make a thing of it. It will be sometime in the evening, uh, so uh, just keep that in mind. If you can make it, great. If you can't make it, you're just going to be hearing about it, and that will be our 50th episode. We will have much more details and specifics next time through uh, for our next episode, so we'll have more for you at that time. Other than that, um, well, we gave you a lot of news. We hope we've given you some stuff to think about. We'll have much more uh, say next time, including the screams of agony from my co-hosts as they have to uh, watch the uh, the Arthur Rackham-style hobbits again and things like that, so here we go. But uh, slightly more seriously, thank you all very much, as always, for listening each time. Again, you know where to find us. We uh, used to leave our little tag in the original form of the outro, but uh, again, megaphonic.fm uh, slash by the bywater, and we do have our episode guides up for all the other things, and you can reach out to us there and elsewhere if you have any questions and things like this. Do consider joining the Megaphonic Patreon. We've had more and more people be joining over the past uh, few weeks, so that way they can join in on the Discord, where we can have sorts of discussions. Special shout-out to one of our regulars, there's Matt Schneider, who's been going through the Silmarillion and been entertaining us with his uh, with his uh, yeah roasts and reads. We really appreciate that over the, over over the over the thing. And yeah, hey, you know if you want to join in, that's where to find us. And we're doing a lot of talk there, and much more besides. So we look forward to seeing you all next time, and we will talk to you then. So until then, thank you. <laughs>